Genre. And welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Annie Reed and Sam Baldwin from the film Sleepless in Seattle. And joining us for the discussion is returning guest Virginia McAllister. Welcome back, Virginia. Thank you. Happy to be here. So glad to have you on. You know, as siblings who live in the same town, uh, this is maybe the year where we've seen each other uh, and had fewer conversations than any that I can remember. <laughs> Um, yeah, we've had this particular living situation where we're actually, you know, close enough we could go pop over any time. Yes, but uh, twenty twenty was not kind to that. No, so it's good to have you on for a discussion uh, about a classic romantic comedy and with a classic romantic comedy pairing of Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan in these roles. Do you remember when you first saw Sleepless in Seattle? Um, I was trying to think about that because I know I knew you were going to ask. I don't remember if I saw it in the theater, but I know I then owned it, I think on a VHS. I don't think DVDs were out at that point. I'm I'm fairly certain I remember a pretty well-worn copy of Sleepless in Seattle on VHS. With that, uh, like Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, and a skyline in the background, right? Yep. Yeah. So I know I've seen it many times since it came out. I don't remember whether or not I ever saw it in the theater or just saw it, you know, once it came out on video. I I remember this being one of the films that mom and dad looked at each other and said, eh, it's probably old enough and let me watch it, which made me feel, you know, <laughs> so mature <laughs> to have crossed <laughs> that threshold. Nice. And it, um, I think it was around the same, because I know this was released the same uh, year as Jurassic Park, which will come up a little bit in the trivia. And I remember that was like the first PG-13 movie I saw uh, in, in the in the theaters. And so it was like, I was crossing a threshold. <laughs> and how, let's see, what how media old, I was allowed. you were 13 at that point? Uh, I would have been uh, actually no. only 11. 11, yeah. 11 at that point, so. Yes, and I, I vividly remember begging them to let me go see Jurassic Park because dinosaurs... <laughs> And uh, then I also vividly remember being curled up in a ball in the theater seat during the (laughs) Raptors in the kitchen scene. (laughs) Well, who wasn't really at that point? (laughs) That was not fun for anyone. Well, as we've kind of already said, Sleepless in Seattle is a 1993 romantic comedy that starred Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. It was written by Nora Ephron, David S. Ward, and Jeff Arch, and directed by Nora Ephron. It tells the story of widower Sam Baldwin, who is tricked by his son into having a pseudo-therapy session on a national talk radio show. Annie Reed, a reporter who's engaged to Bill Pullman, whose character name I can't remember at the moment, uh, hears the story and finds herself very intrigued with this man she has never met. I think Bill Pullman's character's name is Walter. Walter, yes. I, I don't remember the, the last summary. name, but Walter. <laughs> yes. He's a... Yeah, this is a great cast. Um, yes. Uh, I've got it here. Let me... I know I plugged into the trivia, so let me just go ahead and cover. So you have Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, Meg Ryan in your main roles, and the Bill Pullman is... And Rosie O'Donnell are your next ones down. And then you have Victor Garber, Rita Wilson, David Hyde Pierce, even Rob Reiner is in there. Like, that is just a fantastic cast. Yeah, I had forgotten. I, I had totally forgotten that David Hyde Pierce was in this. And his character is so similar in Denials that it was just kind of freaky, you know, having recently watched all the way through Frasier and things like that. So, mm-hmm. I, And I had totally forgotten Victor Garber was in it. 
And, yeah. and just, neither like David Hyde Pierce or Victor Garber, they're not in there for long, but they just they elevate the scenes they're in. Like you just mm-hmm. feel like the quality is never dipping, even as you're spending time with the side characters. Yes. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. The whole cast was really great. So uh, some more trivia about the film. It has a 75% positive rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And the weekend it came out, it made $17 million, which was good enough for second place at the box office behind a little film called Jurassic Park, which at that point was in its third weekend, but was still doing very well on its way to, I believe at the time it became the highest grossing film of all time. And wow. has since been surpassed a couple to, you know, by a couple other films. But mm-hmm. I th- uh, my memory is that for a while it had that crown. Wow. Yeah, that was a very popular film, though. I remember that. Um, Somehow on this podcast, this is like our 321st episode, I think. We have not talked about Nora Ephron very much. I'm sure we've probably referenced her here and there. But I just want to acknowledge that she had a fantastic career. And I was looking up a little extra information about her because she's one of those names you like hear floating through Hollywood, um, Mm -hmm. particularly for uh, the 90s and early 2000s. And so I was looking some stuff up in high school. She had said she dreamed of becoming like a Dorothy Parker. And then she went on to be a satirist, a journalist, a writer and director. So well done, mm-hmm. <laughs> Nora, yes. on that. Kudos. Uh, she interned at JFK's White House. And at leaving that position, she applied to be a writer at Newsweek, but was rejected because Newsweek did not hire women writers. So Nora Ephron participated in a class action lawsuit against Newsweek, and her role in that lawsuit has been adapted into the Amazon TV series called Good Good Girls Revolt, uh, which is, I, I had no idea about that part of her no life. No idea. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Did not know that. Yeah. The, the more I dug into her, I'm like, she's kind of fascinating. So like one other side note, mm-hmm. she was married to Carl Bernstein for a time. She She was married three times, and her second marriage was to Carl Bernstein. And because of that, she knew who Deep Throat was in the Watergate scandal before that became public knowledge. And because she's Nora Ephron and has this fantastic spirit about her, she uh, it's been reported she would tell it to anyone who asked. <laughs> who said, who's, who's, who's Deep Throat? She would say it's Mark Felt. Uh, including auditoriums full of people when she was doing Q&As about like being a writer-director. Someone would ask, like, you, you know, Bernstein, do you know who Deep Throat is? And she's like, it was Mark Felt. And it never made the news until... Wow. <laughs> like, she was apparently saying this for years. <laughs> that's crazy that yeah. is amazing how, how was that never like yes yeah. escaping into because i still remember uh apparently she was saying this like before i would have ever been aware of watergate but i remember all the the discussions about about it and mm-hmm. because she was married to carl yeah. bernstein she wrote a screenplay for um the book all the president's men uh, uh, an adaptation of it that screenplay is not the one that got developed into the film uh there were multiple screenplays that were being written at the same time but um that was one of her first screenwriting gigs was uh trying to adapt uh all the president's men very cool um okay this is another that. bit of trivia about this film that i loved so there's been an attempt to make a stage musical about uh you know adapting sleepless in seattle for over a decade so a man named David Shore has been developing this since 2009. And it has been, from what I can gather, a cursed production. <laughs> so people leaving because of creative differences, uh, the entire uh, music being rewritten, like the everything thrown out and restarted. Uh, it originally had premiere dates in 2010, and then that got moved to 2011, then 2012, and then moved to 2013. Finally, though, after all those uh, delays, it was given a firm release date that it was going to premiere in London in late March 
Well. And, <laughs> and so, of course. That uh, is unfortunate. That did not happen. Uh, apparently, whenever this does, and I'm seeing a reference to an announcement at one point that it would have a socially distanced run beginning in August of 2020, but I can't find confirmation that that ever actually happened. Uh, mm. So it may have finally had its premiere, but it's called Sleepless, A Musical Romance, which I think you're moving a little bit away from like the tie-in to Sleepless in yes. Seattle. Uh, like if that's the audience you're going for, uh, maybe just call it Sleepless in Seattle. Yeah. And interesting that it was going to open in London of all places, you know, yeah. rather than the U S but. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, just while I was looking up stuff on Wikipedia, sometimes they put in quotes from uh, big name reviewers. And so they had a quote from Roger Ebert's review and I liked what he put about it. He says the film was as ephemeral as a talk show, as contrived as the late show, yet so warm and gentle. I, sm- I smiled the whole way through. And he added, the actors are well suited to this material. Tom Hanks keeps a certain detached edge to his character, which keeps him from be- uh, being simply a fall guy. Meg Ryan, who's one of the most likable actresses around and has a certain ineffable Doris Day innocence, is able to convince us the magical quality of her sudden love for a radio voice without letting the device seem like the gimmick it assuredly is. Nice. And I think that's all right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, everything you said. Like, as yeah. I was thinking about this movie for our discussion, which we'll get to, I was like, there's a lot of this that I don't know if it really lands when you try and take it apart. But when you're watching it, it just feels right. Everything works. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yes. How many movies were have Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan been in together? I was trying to count it up. I, at least three there's, or four. Right? Joe versus the Volcano. Right. And Sleepless in Seattle. And... Uh, you've got you've mail. got mail uh and when harry met sally right is that uh, no that's billy crystal no, with that's billy crystal okay yeah i think it's three i've always kind of heard it as the trilogy okay. it feels like they should circle back and do one more together right you've it feels like there should have been more they, they have such great chemistry in this and yeah. and uh you've got mail both of which like again when you like start to take apart all the pieces you're like does this really all work like are these characters actually likable all the way through right. Good people. <laughs> there's, there's problems <laughs> but, but they make it work they sell it so yeah do you know some of the other actresses that were up for meg ryan's role though in sleepless in seattle i did not see that when i was looking up trivia and i'm trying to think through early 90s and like i can think of some of the tv actresses but i don't know that they would have been considered for you know big movie romantic comedy so like jennifer aniston would have uh would friends have been going by then friends was Going by mm, 93. Yes, but she was not one of the ones. Yeah, she I wouldn't saw. have been. And like Sandra Bullock, I think this is before the speed and or was speed. Mm, speed was in this period. So maybe Sandra Bullock, but I'm not sure. Um, I don't remember seeing her, but uh, Julia Roberts was offered the oh, role. Right. She was Julia the Roberts. Choice. How did I not say that when I was yeah. thinking 90s romantic comedies? Yep. But she was doing um, Pretty Woman. I think. And so that was, she couldn't make that work. Well, that was going to work out okay for her. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I think some of the others I saw was Jodie Foster and Mm -hmm. I want to say Michelle Pfeiffer, actually. Oh, does that make sense? I saw a couple of, you know, pretty big name actresses, you know, and actually I think Tom Hanks turned down the role at first um, is what I read. I don't know that they ever came up with a backup for him or how they talked him into it, but uh, he did turn it down the first time he was offered it. Because it was, you know, early 90s, I'm going to guess if they were going for a like Tom Hanks, but non-Tom Tom Hanks, it would have been Michael Keaton offered the role. Mm, I could see that. <laughs> for a little while, they were like 
dueling it seems for like right. the america box office star <laughs> who is going to be our leading man for this period yeah i never saw anything that said you know whether or not they offered it to someone else or if they just really wanted tom hanks for it and kept going after him there's something about their performances that it's hard for me to imagine even though like every name you said makes perfect sense mm-hmm. I, I i'm struggling to imagine other actors in those roles yeah it's not the same movie with mm-hmm. anyone else Okay, um, before we move on to the long summary, listeners, we would like to thank you for downloading this episode. And if you would like to support us on uh, Patreon, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media we've been consuming that we are not covering as episodes of the podcast. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. And now on to the full summary of Sleepless in Seattle. And I know this film was on Netflix recently because uh, Emily and I watched it not that long ago. It was some, I think in December, but I think it's gone from Netflix now. Uh, but I know there's so many services where you could rent it for just a couple bucks. It is a classic if you haven't seen it or you haven't seen it for a while. I fully recommend that you go do that. So here's the summary. Sam Baldwin is a Chicago architect whose wife passed away from cancer. Needing a change, he and his eight-year-old son, Jonah, moved to Seattle. We cut forward 18 months or so, and it's Christmas Eve. Jonah calls into one of those national talk show uh, talk shows with a, uh, a therapist as the host. And you know the exact voice of like the radio therapist that is on the line <laughs> at the time. And uh, this host convinces Jonah to go get his dad on the phone. Sam ends up on the phone kind of begrudgingly and he slowly opens up to the radio psychologist who dubs him sleepless in seattle annie reed is a journalist who's on her way to her fiance's house when she hears this radio call she and thousands of other women become very interested in sleepless in seattle this man who is uh opening up about the love that he had for his late wife annie wants to be happy with her fiance walter but she starts to have doubts because she feels such a strong instant connection with Sam. She even writes a letter to Sam, but decides not to send it. Her friend, Becky, however, sends it for her. Annie is a romantic and loves the movie An Affair to Remember. I wrote down An Affair to Forget, but that is not a movie. I mean, maybe it's a movie at this point, but it is not the movie that she is a huge fan of. An Interesting affair to... swap of words there. Yeah. An Affair to Remember. Uh, and in her letter, she had suggested meeting Sam on top of the Empire State Building on Valentine's Day, like in the movie. Jonah is reading through the mail that the radio station has been forwarding to Sam. So all the fan mail that is being sent to Sleepless in Seattle is going to the radio station and they forward it on to Sam. Uh, and Jonah finds Annie's letter and he likes that one best of all the letters. And it it is a ridiculous amount of letters that Sam supposedly received. Uh, it is. Uh, it's awesome. After, after this. The scene no. with the, the mailman. <laughs> yes um and on the one hand like that seems ridiculous but on the other hand like think about how social media is and the kinds of interactions that people mm-hmm. get <laughs> True, and, you know just for that pre-social media age um he likes that letter best and he suggests that they should go to new york for valentine's day sam says it's too far away and that's a little bit ridiculous to do jonah starts hanging out with a girl named jessica who speaks in acronyms and i i had forgotten about this but it it felt like a conversation with my 12 year old daughter <laughs> sometimes yes. <laughs> and this is from 93 that she was uh, she even did the brb you know for be right back mm-hmm. didn't she was that one of the ones that she used i uh, think I, I, I can't remember but I, I had the same thought because i have an 11 year old daughter so 
Yes, it's yeah. very much like a conversation with her right now. Uh, seeing Jonah hanging out with Jessica, Sam kind of decides Jonah might need a mother figure in his life. So he finally decides to go out on a date with this woman named Victoria, who'd been kind of unsubtly pursuing him. Uh, Jonah meets Victoria, doesn't like her, and still thinks Annie sounded like a better match. Jonah mails a letter to Annie, agreeing to meet on top of the Empire State Building. Annie decides that she's going to do a news story on Sleepless in Seattle. She tells her fiance Walter that she's going to Chicago for a story, but instead flies to Seattle. There, she almost bumps into Sam, who's dropping off Victoria, like in the airport. Uh, Sam is dropping Victoria off uh, for a flight that she's going to have. Uh, Sam actually sees Annie walk by, and he clearly finds her attractive. Uh, Annie goes to Sam's house, but misses them as Sam and Jonah are going out on a small boat on the lake. Uh, she watches them uh, row off together. That night, she calls her friend Becky and promises that she is actually going to go talk to Sam the next day. The next day, she sees Sam and Jonah out, but uh, she stops herself from going up to them when she sees ha- uh, Sam hug his sister, who is visiting. Obviously, she doesn't know it is his sister. She assumes Sam has a girlfriend. When a trunk honks at Annie to get out of the way, Sam looks over and he sees her and they make eye contact and say hi. But then Annie runs back to her car, decides this is all silly, and flies back to New York. Jonah's friend, Jessica, decides that Jonah needs to go to New York since his dad isn't going to go. Her mom is a travel agent, so she books Jonah a flight. Jonah flies to New York, and he's like eight, I think, or nine. I guess it was 18 months later, so maybe he's nine now. Just, uh, yeah. He what flies was it to New that York. Jessica said that she put into, you know, that he's short for his age, so the flight attendant should leave him alone and not ask him questions? Yeah, look, there's a little hand waviness that happens yes. for this part of the plot. <laughs> And Jonah flies to New York. Sam finds out what Jonah has done, and he rushes to go get his own flight to New York. Again, like pre-really cell phone age for, or if you had a cell phone, it was a brick. So just a different age where this is one of those movies that you can ruin the plot with a cell phone. Yes. Uh, and uh, Jonah lands in New York, and he takes a taxi to the Empire State Building. Again, taxi driver, what are you thinking at this I point? I know. But, well, but it's New York, so. Uh, that, yeah. that That is true. Um. Annie is having a Valentine's Day dinner with Walter, and she decides, this is the moment I need to come clean about my trip to Seattle and the letter about the Empire State Building. Walter says he does not want to be with someone who is just settling for him, and Annie gives him back the ring. She runs to the Empire State Building. Uh, Jonah has been waiting for hours on the observation deck. Sam gets there and hugs him. They're alone, so they go get on an elevator to go back down. Just as their elevator door is closing, Annie's opens. And she rushes out onto the empty observation deck. She sees Jonah's backpack and picks it up. Just then Jonah and Sam come rushing back to get the backpack. And they see Annie. They all go down into the elevator together. The end. Well done. Thank you. Uh, And I'm sure we can go circle back and throw in some specificities to some of the seeds. Because, you know, I'm just getting us the nuts and bolts. But there's some great like individual moments that happen in the film that are definitely worth addressing in our discussion. But one thing that I kept thinking about as I was typing up the summary and um, wondering why this film feels like, like it's a cozy film to watch, but it also feels very different. And um, more so than most romantic comedies, like the finale of this movie really is like a beginning. <laughs> like it's mm-hmm. not an on, on again, off again relationship. Will they, won't they? It's like, Oh, we've just watched a very satisfying prologue to a love story more than a traditional courtship. Like the courtship right. can now actually begin. They're not together. They're in a position to get to know each other. Um, and we can assume how that all goes, uh, but it, we're definitely not shown anything. Yeah, I I had the same thought, actually, This just this most recent time of watching it and kind of getting to the end. And then I was just thinking about, OK, well, what would what would be the next 
like chapter of the story. You know, how would they work out the fact that Annie lives in Baltimore and Sam lives in Seattle and that's across the country, for, you know, like who moves where, mm-hmm. or, you know, assuming that they actually get together and stay together and things like that. So I, I was in the same, you know, kind of mode of like thinking about, well, what, what would be next for these characters? How come there's never been kind of a follow up to it? Yeah. Um, and like, will they don't know each other. Like we as an audience have come to know them and, uh, and you know, through all the romantic music and everything, like we've, we're, we're made to feel that they're going to be a great match, but we, we, they haven't actually had a conversation at the end of the movie. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I think they've had what, like two minutes together on screen total the entire movie. They said hi across the road. They saw each other briefly in the airport. So that's a shared screen moment. They said hi. Yeah. Uh, and she watched him in the rowboat. So he didn't know they were on the screen together, but they were on the screen together then. Uh, they were across the road and actually said hi to each other. And then they see each other at the top of the Empire State Building. And that's it. Yeah. So you know that- yeah, total, it's a couple of minutes worth of the film, basically. <laughs> um, on the podcast last year, I think it was, uh, we covered a screenplay written by Scott Corelli and Nick Jimenez called other side of solitude but it was a, a similar where like the the big finale was the two characters actually meeting they'd had like phone conversations but, mm-hmm. so they'd at least had conversations but them actually physically meeting happened in the last scene of the film and i was scott corelli the writer was the guest on that episode and he said like these these two characters could never work it out like they're too different like we as an audience like feel good <laughs> about where they're at <laughs> at this moment but if we wrote wrote like one scene more it's like <laughs> it's all gonna fall apart <laughs> yeah, exactly and I, I don't know that we feel like everything's gonna fall apart but i just think it's really interesting that we get the dopamine hit of a romantic mm-hmm. a romantic story of these two characters like making eye contact <laughs> holding hands i mean they haven't kissed anything you know (laughs) it's like all they've done is said hi and held hands for a minute so but i think one one reason why it is so fast uh so satisfying is these are really well-developed characters um that Mm -hmm. we want to see in better positions in their life than where we see them in most of the film uh and i one thing that definitely struck me and i even like paused the film when i was watching with emily uh, like five minutes in, I was like, there's been so much work that made us, makes us feel like we know these characters five minutes in. True. Um, yeah. Like the scene with, uh, so like very early on, we, we I, I can't remember what the first shot is, but we, we, you know, Tom Hanks is at the funeral. We know he's lost his wife. And then we see him at work and someone comes up and says, I know this is really hard. I've got someone you might want to talk to. And he just pulls out the business cards of all the therapists and the, uh, you know, the other things that people have given him that say, and he like kind of it, not like angrily, but there's just this edge in the way he throws Mm -hmm. them down. And it's not like an outburst, but something in Tom Hanks performance just lets you know, like how raw uh, Mm -hmm. Sam Baldwin is uh, and, and and how these emotions are so close to the surface, but he's, they're not bursting forth. And that performance and the writing in that scene was so strong. Like, I felt like there was more character development in that one opening like revelation about who Sam Baldwin is than sometimes we get in an entire film with the main character where it's just, yeah. where, especially in, in movies that are more driven by, by action. This film isn't driven by action at all. Um, and similarly with, um, with uh, Annie and, and Meg Ryan's performance, like that drive to her fiance's house where she's kind of scattered and flighty and she's like singing along with the song and uh-huh. like, horses, horses, horses. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
you know, like you you, you kind of know who this is uh right mm-hmm. away and, and um so i just want to like recognize the writing of this film and then these performances where they embody those characters i think that's one reason why they can get away with the big finale is finally these characters have met and we just want them to meet each other right well and and to kind of you get the sense for both of them throughout the film that something's just missing for each of them, you know, no matter what else is going in, on in their lives, something's just fundamentally missing. And you feel like, okay, once they've gotten together, that missing piece is there for each of them and everything's now going to be okay. You know, mm-hmm. right. That They found that missing piece and however else they resolve that or, you know, whatever else they do, at least they found that. And you're just kind of waiting the whole movie for each of them to find that. And the missing piece wasn't being in a relationship because they both get into relationships, but it just doesn't feel quite right. Um, it was the relationship with the right person, mm-hmm. you know, that, yeah. Um, And I do want to say like Bill Pullman, he plays such like a lovable little sad sack. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and um, I know there's another romantic comedy I was trying to think of where like the big finale is the main, you know, your, your female protagonist is in a relationship with someone. And he's like, I'm not right for you. Move on. And with my blessing, I think, is it, is it sweet home Alabama? Does it have that moment too? Oh, Oh. I haven't seen sweet home Alabama in a long time. Yeah. I think it may have that too, where it's like, is this guy too good? (laughs) Like, should he be feeling a little more angry, particularly like on Valentine's day? Right. (laughs) That your, your fiance is going to go pursue an emotional attachment. She has formed to a voice on a radio. Yeah. And he's, he's (laughs) just kind of fine with it. Like, I understand the, the, uh, like there's something I think self-protective to say, well, like if you're not invested in this relationship, I shouldn't be in this relationship either. But I think mm-hmm. a little bit of frustration <laughs> well, would have and been I, warranted. Yeah. And, and I, I, oh, I don't remember the exact conversation because my husband and I watched this together and he hadn't seen this in years and years and years and barely remembered it, you know? And so we got to that scene where, she was kind of running towards the Empire State Building. And I don't remember the comment he made, but I, my retort was, well, he didn't fight for her, you mm-hmm. know? So right there, that tells you a lot about, you know, he just like said, oh, okay, well, you better go meet him. And there you go. You know, I, I think that I tells like, you. There wasn't any like fight there for mm-hmm. her, you know? And so did he feel it too? Or maybe it was after meeting her family, which was, you know, a treat. <laughs> So <laughs> that might have given him a sense of what he was in for. And, you know, he was looking for a way out as well or something. I don't know. But but um, I, I think it definitely sh- yeah. says that that relationship wasn't right for either of them. No. Yeah. But I think it might have. For that character, I think I did want to see, even if not fighting to save the relationship, like a little more frustration that she's doing this right now <laughs> at this yeah, time. Something, you know? Some sort of emotional rather than just sort of a. Oh, okay. Well, I guess you better go. Yeah, <laughs> go off and, and meet this other guy that you've only heard on a radio, I, you know, or he could have been saying you're nuts. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, like you, you really don't know this person. An appropriate response. I don't yeah. Know. <laughs> like, how do you know this person is going to be better for you than I am? <laughs> right. Yeah. Which again, valid <laughs> yeah. with what we've been given in the film so far. <laughs> and it, I, um, on the one hand, it's a little funny, but also on the on the other hand, it felt a little bit um, simple to make some of what felt off about him was like he, you know, he had a, uh, like a sleeping machine, like it was noisy to sleep next to him, he had, right. you know, um, 
like is that really what's wrong with the relationship is that he has some of these medical needs <laughs> over on the other yeah, side of the bed I, I know i noticed that too this time where that scene where he's got the humidifier going and 15 kinds of medication on the bedside and you know and it felt like i don't know if they were trying to portray him as like the weaker man or something like that through all of that and I, to me that felt a little contrived and mm-hmm. not terribly um pc yes whatever (laughs) yeah i I think it's supposed to be like uh she's feeling a little frustrated in this relationship and i think like you're saying like is it because he's emasculated because he has all these medical needs over there or is it just annoying to hear the humidifier running and i'm not saying it's not a funny scene it is a funny scene but i almost wish there'd been a little bit more to show why they were attracted to each other but it wasn't quite working yeah no i agree with that as well um let's talk a little bit uh specifically about uh let's do annie first and then sam okay. uh, if you're going to try and nail down what her character is who is meg ryan playing in this <laughs> well what's funny is that so we have a cousin named annie mm-hmm. and she reminded me a lot of cousin annie because cousin annie lived with us for a little while and you were probably pretty young mm-hmm. um, when she was living with us but her hair the way she would do her hair was very similar um she kind of has a, a you know a, a free spirit vibe about her you know and things like that and so it, it's funny that with her name being annie she reminds me so much of cousin annie um but yeah I, i'm trying to think of other way well you go ahead for a moment now collect more thoughts on how to how to pinpoint who annie is well one thing that stands out to me is the that annie is in a flow of thought and then meg ryan does like this little facial thing and then it like shifts gears right uh you know whatever has just entered her head is now coming out of her mouth all right Right. (laughs) and um and she does that several times and it it works for the character but it's one of those things like talking about the andy walter relationship i i think that could have been something where it's like honey can you focus a little like show a little frustration mm-hmm. there um but it, it certainly works for her as a character who is kind of like um you know whatever is the newest most prominent thought in my head is now where all my focus right. is is moving yeah, yeah and, and, I, and i think you need that for a character who is going to uh become so focused on a voice that she heard on a radio mm-hmm yeah, as I say, I think she's also definitely impulsive. You know, she just kind of goes with, yeah, whatever the impulse is. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, you know, part of what takes her across the country to Seattle and, you know, recommending things like going to the Empire State Building. And um, and she she seems like she doesn't want to be a romantic, you know, in some of the conversations like she has with her mom. And with um, Rosie O'Donnell. Yeah, about how... Oh, there was the line about destiny, you know, that that's something we've just made up, you know, there's no such thing as kind of magic and destiny and relationships. And it feels like she's trying to talk herself into actually believing that when deep down, she doesn't believe it. She wants to believe that, you know, there's a a perfect person out there for her and a magic and a relationship that she's missing, you know, and so I think it's her like, recognizing that she's missing something deep down but she doesn't want to acknowledge it and i think one interesting thing in saying like she's impulsive and she's a little scattered um but also she needs i think uh the push particularly from the rosie o'donnell character um in order to like really be impulsive like she she second guesses and pulls back and then 
um, she has to be uh, moved forward. And then she's now, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to do this thing. Yeah. Well, and even you. running over to the Empire State Building, she needs Bill right. Pullman to essentially give her permission and, and remind her, like, no, you should go do that thing. Yeah, that's a good point. Rosie's like her enabler in this <laughs> yes, I think that's a really good way to put that that character <laughs> yeah. as an enabler. Um, pushing her friend into situations that I think she, you know, the, that character wants to be in but wouldn't do herself. But she's right. very comfortable <laughs> insisting <laughs> that her friend go fly across the country to meet a man. <laughs> yes. All right, what about uh, Sam Baldwin? How would we try and do like a character sketch of him? Oh, uh, well, he's... He's definitely, I think like you put at the beginning, he's like very bobbled up um, at the beginning, especially like just sitting on his grief and his emotions and, you know, kind of the opposite of Annie, who's kind of impulsive and flighty and, you know, things like that is that he's kind of the antithesis where um, it feels like he thinks through things very carefully. Um, We see, you know, he is very cautious in like dating again, you know, or things mm-hmm. like that. So he's kind of the opposite, um, you know, where, yeah, everything is, feels very kind of slow and cautious and things like that for him. You're right. And I don't think I would have thought of that at first, but I like that contrast that you're identifying um, and his motivation. Whereas um, Annie, like we said, kind of needs some of these enablers to make her make the choices. His motivation is very internalized and particularly about his love for his son. And like, what is going to be best for my son? Not that his son is like pushing mm-hmm. him to do anything, but like, what is my idea of what is going to benefit my son most right now? Right. Um, and, and so there's something very different there. And in thinking about Tom Hanks's performance, um, like I, I was thinking about his phone call with the you know on on the radio show and that scene that is like it just pulls you in so deep mm-hmm. it's him sitting on a couch <laughs> like that's tom hanks right. acting it's him sitting on a couch <laughs> with the phone against his head um and his performance is just so compelling um as he's searching for words which you know he's are scripted for him and he has memorized but you feel him searching to find the right words to explain why his relationship with his wife meant so much to him and why he's, he's not even looking, you know, to try and recapture mm-hmm. that. Cause he can't imagine uh, being able to recapture that. And um, it, it's a very different performance than Meg Ryan alone in the car. But both of those moments, I was just thinking like, these are really good actors <laughs> right here right. on, on yeah. screen uh, that are um, compelling to watch as they're sitting alone, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a great point. I ha- hadn't thought about that, but yeah, in both cases, it's it's just them, you know, basically. It's just their voice and their expressions and, and they're very different, mm-hmm. you know, what what those scenes are, but there's just something completely captivating about each one in different ways. And I think what what's so different is what exactly what we're just saying exists about these characters. Um that that makes us want to see them both find a better match. Um Tom Hanks is quiet and searching and Meg Ryan is kind of bouncy and talking to herself nonstop. And, <laughs> and, and like her pace of speaking is so much faster than his. Um, and I, again, I don't know if these characters would work out together. I imagine that the, the, the counterpoints that we're seeing are actually, you know, the puzzle piece where the puzzle pieces could interlock and they're, mm-hmm. they're going to help each other. And I, that's the story that we're being sold in sleepless in Seattle. But, but in thinking about that sequence, I think we're seeing a lot of those characteristics come through right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and actually, I realized though that this is a scene where they're not 
they're not on the screen together, but they do intercut it as if they're interacting. Like they're saying the same things at the same time, you know, during the phone call. Mm-hmm. When um, he says it's magic, when he says magic, she mutters magic. And right? She mutters magic. And there was another part where, you know, he, the, the, uh, the talk show host says something, you know, about like, I don't mean to pry. And both of them say, well, sure you do, you know, or something <laughs> like, you know, and so they're, there is this moment of sort of interaction between the two of them where it gives you this hint about how perfect they're supposed to be for each other, you know, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, one other thing that stands out for this film, I think is so the, like the little vignettes, the little slices <laughs> of life that happen uh, throughout. Are there any that particularly stand out for you? Oh man, I love, I just, I love the scenes with the side characters. There's so many of them. The, the her dinner with her family i think just you know is the interaction of all the different family members and their reactions to the engagement I, you know it tells you so much about her and her family so quickly um and i always love david high pierce you know and so any scene that he's in is going to be a favorite mm-hmm. um uh, and then also the the scene where they're talking about so it's when rita wilson which you know and it always throws me that in this <laughs> movie they're playing brother and sister since you know in real life that they're married <laughs> and you're trying to sort of you know <laughs> make that work in your mind um oh and that was another one i read is that rita wilson actually wanted um rosie o'donnell's role she wanted to be the best friend she didn't want to be the sister Mm. um and so and i don't know again how that all worked out and how they talked her into you know being the sister instead but um but anyway where she talks about an affair to remember and she's crying and they say oh that's a chick flick and they start talking about the dirty dozen and you know start (laughs) crying (laughs) so just that that scene with tom hanks and victor garber you know kind of mocking how women talk about chick flicks is just Mm -hmm. one of my very favorite scenes i love it and victor garber his straight-faced comedic delivery is just something to behold i don't know how he holds it together i've seen it do him do, do it in so many roles where like he's being so funny but you, his performance isn't yeah. acknowledging that he's being funny right, <laughs> right then. So i mean and even in that i mean in that scene he's definitely like he's hamming it up with with, with tom hanks right. they're doing it but somehow his delivery isn't like broad comedy as it, as he's doing it Right. No, he's so deadpan about it that it's just, I I don't know how people around him, you know, are able to act off of that without just cracking up constantly. Yeah, I'm imagining him, like, if he was in a sitcom and, and, like, he was a straight man. Like, like, imagine him and Andre Bauer, who's the straight man in... (laughs) (laughs) Right. uh, Oh, what's the the cop show? Uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, right? Like, when they say some of their lines that they're the funniest lines, but they're delivered straight. I don't know how everyone doesn't just bust a gut in the room. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I think that's a good like comedic parallel would be Andre about. Now I want those two in a comedy together. Oh, that would be fantastic. <laughs> totally want to see that. Um, I love when Meg Ryan is listening to the radio show and then she stops for gas and goes in to buy something. Oh yeah. And the two women <laughs> talking about it. And and they're like, Oh, turn the, turn the volume up, turn the volume up. <laughs> And all three of them are, oh, 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 wait. (laughs) Um, I will also say that I think one of the stars of this movie is the soundtrack. Um, I remember owning the soundtrack 
um, I guess that probably would have been on CD. I'm trying to, you know, yeah. trying to remember what technologies were available when, but, and just listening to it constantly. I absolutely love the soundtrack. I love the, the scene of like when he's going to call uh, Victoria and it's, you know, back in the saddle again. And, you know, the way they use the soundtrack throughout the movie to kind of tell part of the story um, is, yeah, I just love that. Yeah, I remember seeing when I was looking up trivia something about the first composer that they had approached um, ended up turning it down because part of doing the the music for the film was going to be integrating all those songs. And they said, "No, you 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 have plans for too many songs. <laughs> it's it's not going to work." Mm. It turns out it does work. I think I think it works very uh, well. Yeah. Um, and then also the uh, it was nominated for two Academy Awards: best original screenplay and then the song. A wink and a smile is a best oh. original song, which I did not realize was original for this. Like, I didn't know that either. It has like the classic kind of old time, timey yeah. romantic charm to it that I assumed it was. And because so much of the rest of the soundtrack is those classic songs that you're saying, mm-hmm. I assumed it was just one I wasn't super familiar with. Interesting. I did not know that. I love knowing that, that that was an original. Cause like you said, it just sounds like an old, older, you know, song that you would have heard back in the forties or thirties or fifties mm-hmm. or whatever, you know, but just, kind of the the older songs that they pull for this and that was uh it's performed by harry connick jr so it definitely he, he can do that older right. style yeah he you know tone does. that yeah uh, you know it fits in with the as time goes by and mm-hmm. <laughs> you know all the back in the saddle again like you said yeah um what about jonah and his friend uh <laughs> oh what is his friend's name again oh, uh, um <laughs> the girl yes uh jessica jonah jessica what do you think about them as kids because i'm always intrigued with kids in movies particularly kids that are going to end up motivating the plot because there's such a range of are these realistic kids are these uh adults writing language for kids that no kid would actually say what what is your feeling about those two i did yeah that's interesting because you know we both have kids and kids who are i i mean i think jonah is only supposed to be like eight or nine i think it was eight at the I, beginning and then there's an 18 month jump so nine okay. to ten you know could be i thought 10. at one point when he was talking about you know flying on the airplane he says i'm eight or something like oh, okay that. Maybe, maybe maybe he was younger than when yeah at the very beginning. So i i did feel like when i noticed that line that they probably wrote him a little older than what they said he was from some of the things he was talking about and, you know, just kind of some of the interactions that he maybe felt more like these, these would be things more appropriate for like a nine or a 10 or 11 year old to be coming aware of and, you know, and mm-hmm. things like that. Um, but, but having him a little younger, like eight, he still had that sort of child, child innocence mm-hmm. of, you know, I just want my dad to be happy. He didn't have like the emotional angst of, you know, I've lost my mom that a slightly older kid would probably have more of. Um, And so, you know, he just had this amazing innocence still to him, you know, of I just want my dad, you know, to be happy. I want a new mom. You know, I want us to be a family. And I think he was he played it so well. Um, I love his performance and um, throughout the movie. Yeah, I don't have any issues like with the line readings or anything. I just think as it was written, I, was, I, I like there are sometimes I caught like, is that realistic? Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, is this exactly how a kid would, you know, what a kid would say or how he would be behaving? I don't know, but. <laughs> 
I will say kudos to the babysitter as well for being, you know, the the perfectly awkward babysitter. <laughs> oh yeah, that's another you know, one of those all like little had at some point. little slices that just worked. Where, yeah. um, you know, time was obviously put into deciding how this babysitter was going to be presented. You know, what kind of character <laughs> it was, all this development that happened uh, for uh, you know a few minutes of screen time, but it elevates everything. You know, it just yeah. makes it makes it all feel a little more real. Um, to, yeah, they like paid attention to all the details. You mm-hmm. know, none of the characters were just a throwaway character. Mm-hmm. You know, they all had something unique to them that, you know, just brought a little bit more to the screen. And similarly with uh, Jessica, um, you know, I kind of catch like, is it realistic that she would print out, you know, a plane ticket <laughs> for Jonah and help? Like, <laughs> would she, she could really... do all that on the computer yeah. back when, you know, kids weren't being taught computer mm-hmm. skills in school. Yes. Um, this and was, I say that, you know, but at the yeah. same time, like when my kids need help with minecraft i'm lost and and my eight-year-old is the one that's like this is what you do daddy it's just like 15 things with the controller in, in 10 seconds and i don't i don't know what just happened <laughs> yeah. true that's a good point but it's still, it feels like at that point computers were still a relatively new things in household you know not all households had them uh, and does yeah, she print out a ticket uh, the ticket like prints out on a dot matrix thing with the you know the right. ripaway sides on the paper <laughs> but she just that she just knows how to use this program you know Mm -hmm. and and create a a ticket for him with with notes that'll make him pass through well and also i mean this was pre-9-11 so like all the security was very different at the airport like they're all hanging out by the gate it always makes me catch with you know in in films pre-9-11 that you know everyone's just wandering around the gates and i know uh, you know it's just so different than uh, for really now like a, a generation's experience with airports is so different than yeah uh than what we see in there um and you know that's not enough to make me dislike the film at all the film is charming throughout but it is one of those things like when you're writing a full summary and you're like really the okay i guess it, she must be like eight or nine and she's doing this but that's the plot mm-hmm. <laughs> and you just kind of have to hand wave your through your, your way through yeah. uh those and i think it goes back to kind of that um you know roger ebert thing where he's like you know i i can nitpick some of this but i smiled the whole way through and and i think yeah. that's um yeah. you know what you end up getting and i don't know if that is um you know where all the credit goes in terms of the direction the editing the writing the acting like it, it somehow it all comes together in with a premise that could fall apart pretty easily or even like just with a few tweaks like meg ryan's character just now becomes a little stalkery you know, <laughs> you know yeah uh, like all of a sudden like it's uncomfortable yeah <laughs> It was but, I, but you never feel that discomfort when you're watching it. Right. It, it is just yeah. kind of a cozy, co- cozy film, which is weird to say about a, a you know film that o- opens up with a widower mourning the death of his wife, and <laughs> having to move across the country, uh, and, and yet Tom Hanks is able to make it feel uh, pleasant to watch this all unfold before mm-hmm. us. Agreed. Um, what about the like meta referentiality of this film uh, in acknowledging? Uh, you know, obviously there's the affair to remember uh, that is unavoidable. <laughs> I mean, even if you don't know what affair to remember is, they, they, they handhold your way through, through that. But I think there's also, you know, through some of the song choices, it's supposed to feel like uh, romantic films from a different era in some ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So have you seen an affair to remember? I know I've seen parts of it. I cannot think if I've ever actually sat down and watched the whole thing. I know I've like, I think I saw you and my mom watching the end of it and you told me to come see it at one point. Quite possible. I told you to watch lots of things. Yeah. 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 
Well, because I've I've seen it. I don't remember that I saw it before seeing Sleepless in Seattle, though. I think I was aware of it, but I don't mm-hmm. think I ever saw it until after. Um, but then I, seen it. I think it, it may be that I think I saw it because I've seen Sleepless in Seattle a few times. Yeah. And so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so, you know, it's it's certainly referenced throughout and they even show scenes of it, you know, throughout so that, you know, who the care, you know, at least who's the actor's. Um, uh, but I, I don't know that the storyline, you know, it's not like a retelling of the story. Mm-hmm. The way you like, you've got mail right. is updating a specific previous. Right. So it's story. not like a, a new version of it or anything like that. I think it just uses it mostly as the frame to get them to the empire state building on mm-hmm. Valentine's day. You know, that seems to be like the whole build up that they're working towards is, Let's them get them together on Valentine's Day, right. you know, at the Empire State Building, and they just kind of use an affair to remember to sort of um, give the impulse and the push towards that, you know. And it's a, a reference that so many people throughout the movie can recognize, you know, that Rita Wilson's character recognizes that immediately, you know, from the letter of, oh, it's like an affair to remember, you know, or the, even the, who was it, the guard at the Empire State Building, you know, lets her up because he recognizes that reference, you know, mm-hmm. and so it, it's just kind of a, something there, you know, throughout the movie to keep propelling, propelling them towards that moment. Now, remind me at, at the very beginning of the film, when she's on that car ride to her fiance's house, is that in DC, Washington, D.C.? I have a memory that I it wasn't. I think so. Um, I Because I think she's from Baltimore, uh-huh. right? So it's somewhere, you know, in, I think it's like in the D.C. area or something right. like that. So in terms of like, like that meta textual aspect of romantic films, I think it's really interesting that we have Baltimore and Washington, D.C. and Chicago and Seattle, but then the big romantic finale is in New York city. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think New York city is, it, it, I, that is absolutely not a mistake, you know, not, not even just in terms of referencing uh, an affair, uh, an affair to remember. I think New York city has this idea of romance. that's become so built into our pop culture that, um, you know, it makes sense for the finale of the film, even though they're not like name checking so many other iconic cities that it has mm-hmm. to be New York city where they end up at. Um, but w- why do you think we, we have this association so strong? I don't know. That's a good question. But I mean, I know I feel I love New York City. I there's just but I don't know what it is. I don't know how to put my finger on it, Um, that it just has this. It's like this combination of sort of really iconic old music and architecture and food and culture. But then it's also, you know, kind of at the heart of like innovation and creativity and the arts and there's some combination of that that's just very romantic mm-hmm. I, it, but I don't know that that makes sense when you lay it all out you know yeah. like that but but it just is you know it's mm-hmm. it's just it is it's a strange thing because when you visit it you, you're not sitting there thinking oh this is a really romantic city you know <laughs> like right. it's not like Paris or some of the European cities but it's a really romantic city. I, you know, and I've got like, it's where my husband proposed to me and it's where, you know, we got engaged and it's where we've spent um, some of our, our anniversaries and, Mm -hmm. you know, some of our kind of getaways. And, but when you're there, you're not sitting there thinking, Oh, this is so romantic, but you know, it's, 
it's always this really like wonderful, fulfilling time when you come away from it. Yeah, I think it's really fascinating the way um, the idea of New York is something that's getting used at the end of this film to help sell us on that closure. Yeah, when, mm-hmm. which again, it's not really a closure; it's like a beginning, <laughs> but yeah. but it works uh, with that feeling. And I, it's because of all you know the Frank Sinatra songs and yeah. all, you know all the movies that are set there. Like we have this. Um, coded expectation for what new york is that as you've noted it's not lining up with reality <laughs> if you if yeah. you actually visit but that idea of new york and uh that sense of energy and romance i think is one thing that helps to sell the finale of this film um and and make us make it feel right uh you know that they're you know going and not just new york but the empire state building right there's something mm-hmm. iconic about it that um yeah it's a beautiful structure but it, it it's like reputation is so far beyond what the structure itself actually is now. Right. Yeah. And I, I think it's the same thing for the city itself. Like the reputation is so much, uh, so hyperbolic in, in co- contrast with like the reality of living in New York city, which, you know, can, can be great. And yes, there's an energy that it's different, but it's also, I, I think in our culture, we've, we've built up something about New York that just spills out and, um, oozes, um, uh, a feeling about it and so like i said they're going through a lot of major cities and and not just like the east coast by cities you know you're hitting chicago you're hitting seattle um and the that finale in new york i I think that with with the hearts on the empire state building and everything like it just is hitting that that uh that that romantic level um that the film needed to really sell that that final act yeah you know what i as i've been sitting here thinking about New York, I think it just has a sense of kind of being larger than life and that anything is possible there, you mm-hmm. know, and and I think that's part of what they're plugging into, you know, is this idea that these two complete strangers could meet on the top of, you know, the tallest <laughs> building. In, <laughs> in Which is so city. nonsensical once you say it like that. <laughs> but this idea that they can meet and live happily ever after, that that's possible because it's New York City and anything is mm-hmm. possible there, you know? And I don't know that you have that feeling about Seattle or, or Chicago right. or Chicago or ball or certainly not Baltimore um, <laughs> that you just, you don't, you just don't have that same um, frame, you know, go, or expectation mm-hmm. going into it, you know, that you can have when it comes to New York. Uh, yeah. I like that phrase that you used of larger than life. And that's what the story is. Like, this is not a real life story, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, at all. It's um, it's, improbable unrealistic uh and yet i like it (laughs) you want want to believe that this could really happen you Mm -hmm. know right and that they could be happy and you know you you want to believe it um and i think that's what you take with you like to new york you want to take with you this belief that anything is possible there you know Mm -hmm. and and yeah so it kind of that city sort of matches what they're selling with the movie yeah I, I think you're definitely right there and uh, you know i've been to chicago i've been to seattle they're beautiful cities but when i was going to new york like just uh, again because i've been so inundated with these frames of reference from you know everything from like superhero comic books that are all so new york centric to uh you know all those songs and all these movies like my I, like my frame of reference for what my experience was going to be just felt different heading to new york mm-hmm. versus heading to chicago or seattle definitely 
Well, Virginia, do you have anything else that you wanted to touch on about Sleepless in Seattle? Um, I think we've covered most of it. I will say we didn't spend any time on, um, I am trying to remember her name now, Victoria, Victoria. Uh, <laughs> you know, and that probably says something about, you know, her role in the movie. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> she's definitely there as like a, a foil more than as yeah. a character. Right. You know, this is someone that we should be comparing to Meg Ryan and Meg Ryan will win. Right. <laughs> so you kind of feel bad for the character and the actress by extension a little bit, I think, because of that. But I did love, jo- you know, some of Jonah's interactions with her. Um, I think those are also some really fun scenes, you know, is just with uh, especially at the airport. And he's just climbing around on the bars and, you know, just kind of trying to be as obnoxious as possible. You know? mm-hmm. um, so I enjoyed even though I, I, you know, I don't think we're meant to enjoy her character and I didn't, you know, but I I still enjoy, you know, some of the interactions and just kind of some of the things that she prompted, I guess. Um especially out of Jonah. Yeah, I think you're definitely right. And like the exasperated looks that Tom Hanks is able to give about his son, like misbehaving, but not like to the level where I get to like really put him in his place, but Uh you're misbehaving enough that I'm getting frustrated. And Tom Hanks is able to play that level of frustration really well. Um, (laughs) And the the child actor whose name I think we should definitely recognize, because I think he does a good job. uh, Ross Malinger is his name. Um, is able to do, like you said, like those kid things of like I dis- being distracting because he's so distracted <laughs> from what's going on. <laughs> uh, as a parent with kids in that age range, it is a real battle. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and like the at the in the end of the day, like the main thing you remember about Victoria is the laugh, and the actress does a good job of leading into oh, that laugh. Yeah, that was quite something. I, I I enjoy thinking about like the workshopping of the laugh. Like how how far do we go <laughs> with the laugh? And did, did they cast her for the laugh, or did the laugh come out of casting her? You know, like I'm curious now about um, where what they you know how the laugh came about. Basically, um, let's see. I'm just double checking my notes. I I don't think I had anything else. But um, again, like as we're picking at some of the nits in terms of like the narrative and does this really work? And where these characters actually get together in the end? I don't care. It's a pleasant film to watch. <laughs> and um, it's also a little bit odd. Cause I was thinking about, it, I'm like, is this a Christmas film? Cause it opens up with like, so Christmas centric at the very beginning, oh, but true. then it also ends. So Valentine's day. I'm like, it almost like wants me to have like a time of year association with it, but I don't really. No, but I like the Valentine. I think the Valentine's day association came through pretty strongly, but that could be, you know, because we're heading into Valentine's Day, and, you know, we've kind of passed. We are the timing holiday. the release of this for the week right. of Valentine's Day, right? Yeah. So. so, so we're right there, you know. So that's kind of more on the brain right now, and so I really, you know, poured pulled towards the association around mm-hmm. Valentine's Day. I think. No, I did. Like Meg Ryan singing alone in the car <laughs> to, to the Christmas song is such like it's such that an odd delightful. scene, but it it works so well. Yeah, horses, 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 horses. <laughs> 
All right. Well, I believe that is going to wrap things up, listeners. Thank you for downloading this episode. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to duelinggenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast on your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. You can reach us by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod or at Jadorowski. And our producer, Andrew, is at Disminute. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. And there's also now a dueling genre discord channel so if you search for dueling genre on discord you'll be able to find all the dueling genre hosts there uh with channels talking about their shows thank you again for listening we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story so I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing. I just realized I didn't put in the names in <laughs> the script. It is Annie and Sam, but what are their last names? Oh. Uh, uh, I, I, I've got a. Annie Wikipedia. Reed. Annie Reed. Annie Reed. And Sam, Sam Baldwin. Okay.